Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 234th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and this very special episode is presented by the HBO drama series Westworld. Time calls it one of the biggest shows on earth. For your Emmy consideration in 21 categories, including outstanding drama series. Westworld. Check it out. My guest today is one of the most significant and beloved figures in the history of the medium of television. Best known for The Carol Burnett Show, a variety sketch program which ran on CBS from 1967 through 1978, she has been nominated for 22 Emmys and won six. She was inducted into the Television Academy Hall of Fame in 1985. She won one Peabody Award in 1962 in recognition of her comedic performances, and another in 2018, the first ever for Lifetime Achievement. She won a Kennedy Center honor in 2003, the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2005, the Mark Twain Prize for American Humor in 2013, and the Screen Actors Guild Lifetime Achievement Award in 2015. In short, her age, 85, is almost irrelevant because she is immortal, the legendary Carol Burnett. But first, I was joined at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter by our editorial director, Matt Bellany, to discuss the decision of the Board of Governors of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences made Tuesday night, announced Wednesday morning, to overhaul the format of the Oscars, five months after the lowest-rated Oscars telecast in history, when 26.5 million viewers tuned in to watch Hollywood's Biggest Night. That's still more than tuned in for any other award show, but it's down 20% from the year before, which is why the Academy and its longtime TV partner, ABC, felt they had to do something. Matt, thanks for joining me. No problem. So there were three major changes announced by Academy President John Bailey, who was also re-elected on Tuesday night, and Academy CEO Don Hudson. The first is to present a number of these awards, undoubtedly mostly coming from the the below-the-line categories, during commercial breaks, and then air highlights of them as interstitials coming in or out of the breaks. Wait, they're not going to do Best Picture during the commercial? (laughs) (laughs) I figured that would be the first thing they would do. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome back. It's Moonlight. (laughs) Well, this sort of format is already in place at the Tonys, but nobody really watches the main part of the Tonys anyway. So, But in the case of the Oscars, the below-line people are pissed because their own governor sort of voted for this, but the general public was not interested in watching a show on which they only cared about a small number of 24 categories, right? And let's be honest, the Academy had a gun to its head. Mm -hmm. The gun was held by ABC. ABC is pissed because the ratings are going down. They have the marquee award show for which they pay a lot of money, Mm -hmm. and the Academy had been unwilling to change up what is a very, very boring format for most viewers. Now, those of us inside Hollywood love to see the less popular categories. Right. You know, we follow this race very closely and love to see it all, but the average viewer just doesn't. And it's something that the Grammys realized years ago and said, you know what, if we want our show to be relevant, we can't present all these awards on the air. We have to do something. Now, granted, the Grammys has a product music that is very well situated for an award show. They just turn it into a three-hour concert. The Oscars can't really do that. But the Oscars do have other things that they could do with that time. And I've you know, said for years they should be showing clips of upcoming movies and really making turning this into a showcase for everything that everyone loves about the movies and not just these awards. And maybe now they're going to start doing this. Well, there are a lot of people in town here who have left microphones you know on social media so the the perception from those people is that this is 
the end of the world. We've been talking to Academy members who are from the Blowline branches. They're very upset because they're not going to get to give a full acceptance speech necessarily on TV in some cases. But, you know, as you say, people just don't, in the general public, care about the three shorts awards. They don't care, you know, even in the Academy, only maybe the sound branch voters know the difference between sound editing and sound mixing. And in fact, this year, they nominated the same five films for both of those. So it's some question about whether all of them, you know, can make a distinction between those. So there's definitely some cutting down that that could happen. But the sense of a lot of pundits here is that the Academy has just thrown out tradition and also the sense of honoring the business that they were created to do do you and, think and I, I totally get that yeah. i and i understand throughout the community there is outrage over this because people say oh who cares about the ratings we don't exist as an organization to serve a television network we exist to honor the best there is in movies each year if there's an audience for that great and it's been lucrative for the academy over its 90-year history but a lot of people think, you know what, if the audience isn't there, so what? We're going to do our thing and they can come along or not. And it's about the movies. And this is showing that it's really not about the movies. It's about pleasing a TV audience. And the, just the psychology of that, though, is because the Academy really makes the vast, vast, vast majority of its money from that TV deal. And in fact, before they made their first TV deal in, in the early 50s, they were on the verge of shutting down the Oscars because they had no money coming in. So I think that people say, well, why are you worried about what ABC thinks and about the ratings and whatever? Well, if ABC doesn't support this, yes, somebody will always want to air the Oscars, but it doesn't do a lot for them if they're on epics or something. You know, they have to produce a product that people want to watch en masse. Yeah, it's about the currency that the Academy has. And every single member loves the fact that they get to vote on something that everybody cares about. And the reason why everybody cares about it is because it's on television. You know, this came up when the Golden Globes were renegotiating with NBC and there was all this talk about how they may go to Amazon or they may just put it on Netflix. And that would have been a disaster for the Golden Globes yeah. because the entire currency of the show is that it's a show on a big broadcast network that millions of people watch the night that it airs and it becomes the equivalent of a sporting event. It's, you know, it's it's a major deal. And I think that's what the Academy members who are complaining really need to think about is that if they don't adapt, then this is going to keep going down yeah. and all the odds are against them. Television ratings are down across the board, and it's a challenge to keep an audience with all the Netflix and video games and everything else that's out there. This may do nothing. This may just be a big, you know, controversy. Yeah. yeah, a controversy that doesn't lead to any increase in ratings. But I think you got to try. Well, the second of their three tactics to try to shake things up is that they are now going to create an award called Outstanding Achievement in Popular Film. I suspect the name itself might change a little bit, but there's going to be an Oscar that essentially is going to be the popcorn Oscar, honoring movies that the public actually really liked. This happened between the gulf between what the public buys tickets to see and what the Academy has been nominating and awarding has never been as large as it is now. You know, you're not seeing too often movies that are huge hits also nominated for top Oscars. And also by having this award and whether it's the top five box office draws or whatever, you're also presumably going to get a lot more movie stars at the show, which might incentivize people to tune in. We have seen that the ratings of the Oscars telecast really has nothing to do with the host or the length of the show, but it's almost always directly correlative with the popularity of the movies that are nominated for the top awards. 
I'm not a huge fan of this. I think this is a weird statement to make that they're going to be start awarding an Oscar for popular movies. What does popular mean? I mean, a lot of times these movies that are smaller budgeted movies come into the Oscars with $300, $400 million in box office like Get Out or La La Land. Are those considered popular movies or are those considered traditional Academy movies. I, I, it's just when you put a label like that on it, it just it creates so many more problems than they're trying to solve. And I just don't know. I mean, they're going to have to really elaborate on yeah. what this means. Is it, it blockbusters? Right. Is it only studio movies? Is it movies that come with a hundred million dollar budget or more? And then how do you handle something like Netflix, which if it is about box office, how are they going to handle Netflix? And maybe this is if we're giving them a lot of credit, we could say that this was all to further drive interest in theatrical and the importance of having a big theatrical release. I don't think they've thought it through that much because if they had, we also would have a clear idea of what, as you say, like what do they mean by popular? Or, or are they going to let people at home vote? I mean, this they could go full MTV awards right. and just let people call in and vote. And, and then next, you get into potential hacking issue. If our presidential yeah. <laughs> election can get hacked, I mean. Or next thing you know, there's some, you know, conservative call-in drive for Dinesh D'Souza. Right. <laughs> and all of a sudden, his his documentary is up for best right. popular. Right. I, I mean, there's all sorts of problems that, that this is going to, to raise. I don't think they're going to ultimately open this up to the public. I think that would right. that would really cheapen everything. It's probably everything. the top five highest grossing domestic or maybe internet, I don't know, worldwide grosses. Maybe. But if you looked at that last year, Get Out would have been on that list. And, so and Get, Out cost, Get Out cost, what, $10 million to make? But that's okay. I mean, you know? it's, it's at least you're guaranteeing that the public will have a reason to watch. Now, the problem here is that people are upset because Black Panther is a movie that was probably on track to get a Best Picture nomination anyway. It may still, but what they're saying is that by giving people a separate category where it's clearly for a movie like Black Panther, then maybe people feel, all right, we've taken care of it there, so we don't have to take care of it for picture. In the same way that when they created an animated feature award, you started seeing maybe a little drop-off in the number of animated features that could actually contend for best picture. Yeah, the Beauty and the Beast rule right. where, you know, they create the category and all of a sudden that category film doesn't break the, you know, the big boy room. Right. I think that's a real problem and I think they're going to ha have to deal with that. I think it is ironic that when you have a movie like Black Panther, which I think most people agree is going to get into that mm -hmm, best picture mm -hmm. group or should get yep. into that best picture group this year. Disney is certainly planning to support it and get it into that that big group to now have something else to deal with. You know, if you have a great movie, do you even want right. to be in the popular? Well, that's why it's got to be an automatic thing. You, if you gross a lot, you're in or something because otherwise you're gonna have people declining nominations. Right. And would Disney then take their movie out of contention for that award to try to get to the grown-up table at the best picture? But I don't or think it's is, gonna... is is it going to cheapen the best picture award where if your movie you know God forbid is successful right. well, that's you know and you you make money on it are you then going to be at risk of being put in with movies that are like Transformers or Mission Impossible or things like that that don't have the same level of artistic cachet? Well, the irony here is that presumably this category again like the rest of these changes was brought about by abc leaning on the academy abc's parent company of course is disney which is the same as marvel so now if this does hurt the best picture prospects of black panther they've done it to themselves in a way but at the same time black panther is now a prohibitive favorite to leave with at least one oscar 
True, unless another movie comes along later in the year that is a quote unquote popular movie right. and does really well and maybe is it you know fresher in people's minds. I don't know. I think it's going to lead to an, a new front in Oscar campaigning yep. because it lets a whole bunch of movies into the tent that were not in the tent before. And even if something like Star Wars Force Awakens, which people liked yep. and thought, hey, maybe it could get a Best Picture yep. nomination when deep down, it wasn't going to no, get a best no, picture no. picture nomination. That movie probably would have done pretty well in the popular sure. awards. Or Deadpool or yeah, Wonder and then Woman. you have J.J. Abrams and the cast of Star Wars up on stage at the Oscars, which ABC would have loved yeah. and the Academy, frankly, would have loved. And the idea that this is just abandoning the great time honored traditions of the Academy. The fact of the matter is. The very first Oscars actually had two best pictures. There was one called Unique and Artistic Picture, which went to Sunrise, which is sort of the artsy of the two. And then there was Outstanding Picture, which went to Wings, which was a movie about like flyboys and was the more popular movie with the public and sort of the blockbuster winner. So this is not like something that people are thinking about for the first time now that maybe we have to give a nod to art and commerce. But anyway, the last change that the Academy implemented today is that for the 92nd Oscars, the one that will take place honoring next year's films, that Oscar ceremony is going to move up from February 23rd to February 9th. That shortens the award season with the goal of making the Oscars a bit less anticlimactic at the end of the whole award show circuit. But already we're seeing that some of those earlier award shows are moving up their dates, like BAFTA, which means voters will have even less time to see the films they need to see. Not to mention the majority of those smaller movies box office right. is done between nominations and the show people love to catch up on the oscar nominated movies and that's been the entire economic rationale for caring about the oscars if you're a smaller movie was to bring attention to your movie so that you would make more money in box office and if you're shortening that window it's going to hurt those films in my opinion i know why they're doing it they feel that the award season lags and that by the time the oscars roll around everybody's seen these same people on stage 10 million times i get it but that's not going to change people are just going to jump the academy and cram all right. these shows into the window before the oscars it's just going to create a more hectic and frankly draining shorter Oscar season, and you lose the benefit of the actual viewership for these films. And by playing with the calendar like this, it's going to affect a lot of things. Somebody, you know, people have pointed out today that Sundance is now going to be more of a campaign stop for contenders. Santa Barbara Film Festival is going to be affected. They're going to have to move up if their model of honoring contenders is still going to stand. The Grammys are going to be affected date-wise by this. Berlin Film Festival is going to, you know, be impacted. So there's a lot of ricochet effects here. But look, to me, the Academy had two options. You adapt or you die. Basically, they're continuing to plummet in the ratings and what they had is not working. So they had to do something. No matter what they did, they're going to piss off some people. True. I just think they've done some savvy things and they've done some things that seem a bit ham-fisted. That is undeniable. So we will see how it pans out. It keeps us on our toes. Matt, thank you for coming in. Sure. And now for my interview with Carol Burnett recorded at the Santa Monica offices of Dick Clark Productions, which produced the Carol Burnett 50th Anniversary Special. Ms. Burnett, thank you so much for doing Carol, this. call me Carol. Thank you, thank you. It's such an honor to have you on. We always begin with just a few basics. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? Well, <laughs> I was born in San Antonio, Texas. We moved to California when I was seven, and I was raised by my grandmother. 
you had an interesting childhood, I guess, because maybe you, to whatever extent you're comfortable, if you can share wh- where your parents were in this. Well, unfortunately, they had the disease of alcoholism. Yeah. And my mother didn't start drinking until she was in her 30s, but dad, daddy drank a lot. Yeah. What even, I guess, started in his teenage years, mm-hmm. you know. But I've always thought of him as a drunk Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> he meant well. <laughs> he, he was sweet. I yeah. mean, he didn't, you know, there was no hostility or right. anything. He just had that disease. So I was raised by my maternal grandmother. And how did that affect things? I understand it was, uh, you know, financially tough. Well, yeah, we were on welfare because that was during the Depression. Yes. So, I, you know, I'd get hand-me-down little dresses and... I remember sitting on the porch in San Antonio waiting for a truck to pull up and give us a chicken Mm. for dinner, you know. But everybody was in the same boat, so I never felt deprived. And it's interesting. I've always read about people say that even during the Depression, movies, there was a desire for escapism, particularly at the movies. I'm sure Shirley Temple was the top star Yes, because it was just a wonderful getaway for people, you know. And And you went a lot. Well, as much as we could afford, which wasn't a lot, but we went a lot when we came to California. And what brought about that? Well, my mother was out here, and my grandmother wanted to come out to Hollywood. For reasons related to the business? No, 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 not at all. My mother actually, early on, dreamed of being the next Luella Parsons or Hedda Hopper. (laughs) She did do some freelance interviews. She interviewed Bob Hope, Mm -hmm. Rita Hayworth. Okay. George Montgomery, people like that, but it was all freelance, so she never really had a steady job. People might get a kick out of knowing that you did some interviews when you were a kid, right? (laughs) I did, yeah. What was that about? Well, I was editor of my high school paper at Hollywood High. Mm -hmm. I thought I was going to be a journalist because Mama always said, well, you can always write, you know, be a writer and stuff, because that's what she, Mm -hmm. that was her dream. So I got the bright idea to interview famous people who went to Hollywood High School. That's great. So one of the famous ones was Joel McRae. Mm-hmm. Now, for those of you who don't remember or too young to remember him, he was a big movie star, yes. mostly in cowboy films and stuff. But he did some comedy, too. Sullivan's Travels. And, and the that. more the merrier. Yes. And, yeah. and so I thought, well, I'm, I'm just going to interview him for the Hollywood High School News. And I called up the studio where he was and I said I'm I'm a young journalist in high school and I would love it. and I guess it they got tickled about it and they said okay he'll see you that's awesome yeah so I took the bus and everything and I went and there he was with uh, in his office with his cowboy boots on <laughs> you know and I said how'd you get your start right. and you know on and on and on and he couldn't have been nicer that's great he was really nice so then I ran the story yes in uh, hollywood high school news and then i had one all lined up for lana turner okay all right and somebody snitched on me because they said she's cutting class oh my god (laughs) so i never got to interview her but yes there's a nice ending to this story she was a guest on my show years later that's great yeah well so i assume that this would have also been while you were in high school you worked a job on the side as an usherette right Uh, yes well that was a summer Okay. Yeah, that was the summer end. I would think I was 18, so I was at UCLA, 18 or 19. I was at UCLA. So I ushered at Warner Brothers Theater on Hollywood Boulevard and Wilcox. I loved the Alfred Hitchcock movie, Strangers on a Train. Oh, yeah, of course. I had a crush on Robert Walker. <laughs> and anyway, I, was, I remember this one night, I was standing in front of aisle two, and this couple came in. Now, this was when... 
the movie just kept running on again and again yeah, and again yeah. and again. So people, it was weird, would come in, maybe the halfway through a movie and sit down yeah. <laughs> and watch it. And then they'd wait and see the beginning to the middle and they'd say, oh, this is where we came in. And they'd leave. <laughs> I, I mean, you can't imagine yeah, that today. No. And I was a purist, okay? Yes. So I wanted to see everything from start to finish. Right. Well, this couple came in and they wanted to be seated the last five minutes of Strangers on a Train. Now, this is Hitchcock. <laughs> and the last five minutes, that's the big culmination. You don't know what's right. going to happen. Da, 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 da. And I said, oh, please, please, you know, wait, wait. It's going to come on again in another 10 minutes. And you can see it from the beginning, but it'll spoil it for right. you. You know, and this woman said, we want to be seated. You know, <laughs> I said, please, please. And so the manager came up. Right. Now, we wore this stupid usherette costumes where we had balloon pants and i don't know kind of a, a jacket that looked like it was uh, it had medals on it and right. we had epaulets and oh it was terrible right. anyway so i you know he, the manager came up and he was not a nice man mm-hmm. and he said what's going on here and they said well she won't let, let us sit down he said what's going and i said but Mr. Batten, it's, it's hitchcock right you know and it'd be much better if, if they wait i'm right. just trying to you know and he said, Burnett? And I said, yes, sir. And he cut his finger across his throat like, oh my God. like I'm fire. And then he ripped off my epaulets. Ugh. Ugh. What a jerk. I, I was drummed out of well, the court. Well, were, you were right. And you got the last laugh, right? I sure did. Because years later, the Chamber of Commerce said, where do you want your star on Hollywood? It's right in front of that theater. And there's another ending. Just a few short years ago, they were kind of gutting the theater. It's now called the Pacific or something yeah. like that. And I got the door. Oh, that's great. I was fired in front of, and it's in my home. Oh, that's so great. Yeah. <laughs> you really, yeah. what a story. So how did somebody, though, that was coming from such a, a humble upbringing, how were you able to go to UCLA? Well, it only cost $43. Okay. But we didn't have the money. Right. Our rent was $30 a month. Mm-hmm. I remember when it was raised to that, and my grandmother said, a dollar a day just to live in a place? That's ridiculous. <laughs> so I needed that money to go to UCLA, but it was really weird. I knew I was going to get to go. Mm-hmm. I didn't know how, but I saw myself on campus, and I just I was so sure that I was going to get to go. And then we lived in one room in this building, apartment building, and it faced the lobby. And so every morning I would look out into the lobby at the desk where there was a pigeonhole nail mailboxes and see if we had a letter yeah. or anything, you know. So this one morning there was a letter in our box and I went and got it and I opened it up and there was a fifty dollar bill in it. Oh my god. And it was addressed to me. Nothing. Just a fifty dollar bill and to this day You have no idea. No. That's amazing. And so... But that's how I got to go to UCLA. Beautiful, beautiful story. And while you were there, I think it was when it became clear that acting was going to be your focus in life. Yep. What did that? I decided to major in theater arts English Mm -hmm. because to take the playwriting courses, and I also took a journalism course. But if you majored in theater arts English or whatever, you all had to, as freshmen, had to take an acting class. You had to take scenery building you had to take costumes you had to take lighting Uh uh-huh aside from all your other subjects and so i was terrified about taking this acting class 
And so I got in and I did a couple of scenes and I liked the response yeah. <laughs> that I got. I, I chose a lighthearted scene. You knew even then that do. you had a sort of a facility for comedy? Not until I got on stage. Okay. I had no idea. Okay. But I was always play acting with my girlfriend in the neighborhood. Yeah. You know, when we'd go see the movies and we'd come out and we'd pretend to be Betty Grable. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> in fact, when I did this one scene, I pretended I was Betty Grable. <laughs> and I got laughs and I, yeah. where I should have. Right. And I said, well, I, this is a good feeling. Yeah. And so the bug bit. Well, relative to the story you told about the $50 bill, one of the most amazing stories I've ever heard is how you were going, you know, the dream it seems like was now New York, New York, and particularly a George Abbott directed play, right? That's right. Or a musical. Well, George Abbott was Mr. Broadway. Right. At yeah. That time. And had done all the major musicals. But again, you didn't have money. No. And I wanted to go to New York to be on the stage like Ethel Merman and Mary Martin and so I was in a opera workshop class, which featured scenes also for musical comedies. Mm -hmm. I remember I worked up a scene from Annie, Get Your Gun. And I didn't know I could sing until late in life, you know, because mm -hmm. I, was, I would sing with my grandmother and mother in the kitchen and we'd harmonize, but never a solo, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. So anyway, I worked up this scene and there were nine of us in the class and some were doing scenes from Brigadoon and some, mm -hmm. you know, from Oklahoma. And the professor, his name was Dr. Popper, Jan Popper, mm -hmm. and his wife were going to sail to Europe or something. And they were being given a Bon Voyage party in San Diego this one Saturday night. And as I said, there was nine of us in the class. And Dr. Popper said, well, you know, why don't you kids come down to San Diego? It's going to be a black tie affair. Mm -hmm. And you be the entertainment for the party, and I'll grade you. <laughs> you know, so wow, you know, let's go down yeah. free hors d'oeuvres. Right. <laughs> you know, right. so we did our scene, and I was at the hors d'oeuvre table, and I'm swiping hors d'oeuvres and putting them in a napkin to take home to my grandmother. <laughs> oh, that's. And there's a pat on my shoulder, and I thought, I'm busted, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and it was this gentleman and his wife. Uh huh. No, very nicely, you know, he was in a tux and she was in a gown and he was complimentary. And he said, so what do you want to do with your life? And I said, well, someday I'd love to go to New York and be on this day. Why aren't you there now? And I said, well, I'm hoping to someday save up enough money. And he said, I'll lend you the money. And I thought, I thought it was a champagne talking. Right. And she said, no, he means it. And he gave me his card and he said, give me a call Monday. And so... We worked it out, and I was with my boyfriend at yeah. the time. We did the scene together. Yeah. He said, you kids come down, and I'll lend you the money. And did you think there was some catch here? I was naive, so yeah. I, I just thought, well, what, what's going to happen? Right, you know, was, right. So we borrowed a car yeah. and drove down in his office at 9 o'clock that following Monday. Had a beautiful office. The carpet was 10 feet deep, yeah. <laughs> thick and gorgeous right. mahogany desk and all, and he's sitting there. And he talked to us for a while, and he said, okay, I'm going to lend you some money, and here are the stipulations. Pay it back if you can within five years, mm -hmm. no interest. Yep. You must use the money to go to New York on. You must never reveal my name, mm -hmm. and you must promise to help others out if you are successful. We just, whoa. And he wrote out two $1,000 checks. Now, $1,000, yeah. 
three zeros. I never saw that much money in my life. So I went to New York. And did you ever see him again? Yep. What happened was, oh, and I paid him back five years to the day Ah. (laughs) with a certified letter, but I never heard from him. So then when I got my own show several years later, Mm -hmm, I think it was the second or third year, she called the The missus and said, we're so proud of you and everything. Would you and your husband like to come down and have lunch with us in San Diego at the marina or wherever? Right. So we drove down, and he was very kind of quiet and shy. She was chatty Cathy, terrific. Yeah. And it was a lovely lunch. And as we're walking to our cars, I'm walking with her, and he's walking with my husband. And she said, you know, he was so proud. And But whenever, for any reason, we might be somewhere and your name came up or we saw you on a television set and we were with other friends, he never said a word. We would just look at each other and smile. That's a beautiful, yeah. beautiful story. He was very wealthy. He evidently, like, he was not from the United States. Yeah. But when he came to this country, somebody staked him to a claim. Oh, wow. So I wasn't the only one. He had helped people open restaurants. Right. And filling stations. If he thought that these kids had it. That's had amazing. you know, And that they would pursue their dream and not disappoint him. That's great. So when you got to New York... I understand there were a few years there where it was touch and go, and you were staying, in fact, I think, at the place that inspired Stage Door. Yes, the rehearsal club. Yes. But tell us, how did you end up not only landing your first Broadway show, which was Once Upon a Mattress, but that happened to be directed by none other than George. (laughs) George It's like it's a Cinderella story. I I think if you put this in a movie, nobody would believe it. But that's what happened. It was uh, 1954 when I landed there. And I remember I checked into the Algonquin Hotel, because I'd read about it, Yeah, you know, and oh my God, it was $9 a day, you know, and our rent had been $1. (laughs) Right, right. Oh, oh, what am I going to do? And I hardly had any money left because of the ticket. I had to buy some clothes. I even had to have a wisdom tooth pull. So I used part of that $1,000. I was alone, you know, and I thought, what what did I think was going to happen? You know, and I started to like cry and get scared and it started to rain Mm -hmm. and i love rain Mm -hmm. then i turned on the radio in the hotel room and it said there was a hurricane coming up as hurricane carol (laughs) you can look it up 1954 in august right and i thought well that's some kind of a sign yeah and i had one telephone number in my wallet it was that of a girl that had gone to UCLA. She was about four years ahead of me. And she was coming to New York. And she said, if if you're ever in New York, here's the number yeah. where I'm going to be. So I called her the next day. And she was living at the rehearsal club. Right, right. And she said, where are you? And I said, I'm at the Algonquin Hotel. She said, oh, my God, get out of there. <laughs> Come up here. Right. And it was a boarding house for young women interested in the theater. Mm-hmm. It was on very much on the up and up. Yeah. No men allowed beyond right. the parlor. Right. And there was a house mother. So she said, well, we have a cot mm-hmm. in what they call the transit room where I would live temporarily with four other women. There'd be five of us in one room mm-hmm. on cots and a little dressing. Each one had a little dressing table, one bathroom, right. one closet oh, with five women. <laughs> but it was heaven to me. a week room and board 
And I imagine it was probably through the connections there that you ended up with your first show in a way, getting well, to that? actually, what happened was I, you know, you, you make the rounds and you try to get an agent. Right. Finally, I got past a receptionist and I saw an agent. Yeah. Because you can't get a job unless you have an agent. So I showed him my scrapbook full of reviews yeah. from UCLA. Yeah. And he said, well, nice. Let me know when you're in something. I said, oh, but, uh, it's Catch-22. How, right. how do I get in something if I don't have an agent? Right, right. And he said, well, go put on your own show. And the penny dropped. I said, duh. I went back to the rehearsal club, and I called a meeting of all the girls. Mm-hmm. There were 25 of us. Mm-hmm. And I told them what this agent said, and I said, look, the rehearsal club is famous. Let's put on the first rehearsal club review. Mm-hmm. So we wrote it, and we wrote the first act, and we performed it for some ladies who subsidized the club, rich ladies who go to lunch in New York. <laughs> and they gave us $200 to rent the Carl Fisher Concert Hall to put on our show. And we sent penny postcards to every agent, producer, director in town. And we said, you're always saying, let us know when we're in something. Well, we're in something. Mm-hmm. Come see us, March, whatever it was, two nights. Mm-hmm. And this penny postcard is your ticket. Right. Well, we were packed. That's great. Even Mitch Miller came with Marlena Dietrich. <laughs> <laughs> it was wow. wild. Yeah. Celeste Holm came, yeah. you know, and lots of agents stuff. And so the next day, the phones at the club were one phone was ringing off the hook and three of us got agents so i got an agent yeah. then i got summer stock yeah so it was slow but then things just started happening and i did the ed sullivan show yes i can you just share because i think it's so funny that was at the end of a week in which you'd been yes, on a right. few things right <laughs> well i had a coach a singing coach and he was a special material writer who is still today brilliant mm. Ken Welch, Mm -hmm. and we put together an act for the Blue Angel, and I auditioned, and they put me on, uh, you know, and uh, there was a very in nightclub in New York, and then they wanted to renew my contract. They said, but you need some new material, so Ken came up with the idea of doing a song about this girl. This was at the height of the Elvis Presley craze, but he came up with the idea of doing a song about a young girl, not crazy about Elvis, but in love with John Foster Dulles, who at the (laughs) time was the Secretary of State, and as they used to say, he was aptly named. (laughs) He was really dull. He wore an overcoat, he never smiled, he had a fedora on his hat. So he wrote a song called I Made a Fool of Myself over John Foster Dulles. And I, that was my opening number. About how, how enamored you were. With- oh, enamored I am of this, with, you know, and the audience just screamed. Right. So they got me on the Par Show, Jack Par Show. Yeah. It was Tuesday night. Right. In August of 1957. Yep. And I sang the song and I went back to do the last show at the Angel and the phones were, some people were upset about it. Some people were screaming <laughs> with laughter. And then there was a Mr. Dulles's assistant. Right. And he said, Mr. Dulles didn't see it, but could you go back on the Jack Parr show and do it again? <laughs> so Parr had me back on Thursday night. Right. I did it. And then on Sunday, Ed Sullivan had me do it. So it was right. three times right. in one week. Right. And the following Sunday, right. I'm at home and I'm watching Meet the Press. Right, right. 
and Dulles is on. And they're talking about all the things they talk about now, Mideast crisis and everything, you know. And then finally at the end, just before they were going to sign off, the interviewer said, so what's this about you and that girl that sings that love song about you? And I went, oh, my God, I'm watching this. And I swear he got a twinkle in his eye. Right. And he kind of smiled. And he said, I make it a matter of policy never to discuss matters of the heart in public. (laughs) Well, I thought... He does that have a great. sense of humor. No, that was I, great. You know, that was so sweet. And those had been your first times on TV, right? Yeah. And it was while you were in Once Upon a Mattress that you now had your first regular gig on TV. This is the Gary Moore Show. Right. You were on from 1959 to 1962. This was a variety show, and I've read that you, A, thought very highly of Gary Moore just from your working with him. Absolutely. But also that that was, in, in some ways, later a model for... The Carol Burnett Show. That's right. What was it about that show that most impacted you? The music, the sketches, being able to do different characters, and working with Gary. He was the most generous man. Like we would be sitting around reading the script for that week or something. You know, Derbert Kirby was the other second banana. He was very funny. And Gary might have a joke or a punchline, and he'd look at it and he'd say, you know, give this to Carol or give it to Durward, they can say it funnier than I can. Mm-hmm. That, to me, that impacted me so that when I had my own show, okay, it said the Carol Burnett show, but I wanted a true rep company where I would be supporting Harvey right. in a sketch. Right, right. Or Vicki would be supporting Tim, or, you know, even though it had my name, right. we shared. And I think that is one of the features that has lasted with our show that... Nobody tried to hog it. Right. And in fact, Tim, you first crossed paths with on... on the Gary Moore show. Yeah. But I didn't work with him on that show. He just happened to he be had a, He had a bit that he did, and that was it. You obviously resonated on the Gary Moore show because coming out of that, you had this unbelievable, in so many different ways, the fact that it's a 10-year contract you were signed to. I don't think there are 10-year contracts anymore <laughs> for know. anything, but you signed with CBS uh-huh. to, and... The 10 years would require me to do a special and two guest shots a year for 10 years. And then there was a caveat that within the first five years, I had some kind of an agent, I'll tell you. (laughs) If I wanted to push the button, CBS would have to give me 30 one-hour comedy variety shows. Unbelievable. And I said, well, I'd never want to do that. I'm not a guy. I'm not a host. I I never thought I would. But then, the last week of the fifth year, when yes. it would be up, my husband and I were not doing too well financially. Mm-hmm. And Even five years into uh, the contract. The contract, yeah. Yeah, and so it was the last week. It was between Christmas and New Year's. Otherwise, the con- that particular caveat would have been right, up. Right, right, So we said, okay, we're going to push the button. Let's just contextualize <laughs> for listeners, though, why that was such a kind of revolutionary thing in a way, because I want to quote what Mary McNamara and the the LA Times writer there wrote, quote, women back then didn't do comedic variety. They did musical variety, a la the Dinah Shore show, close quote. So what was it that even, you know, it's so thinking outside the box in those days to think that that was something even to do, right? Well, I I thought it was because that's what I'd been doing on Gary's show. Right. So I didn't think, oh, I'm a woman, right? You know, and so when I called CBS in New York to push the button, yeah, they'd forgotten 
that they offered him. That they had offered that con- He right. totally forgot. This is a vice president or yeah, somebody there? Yeah, Mike yep. Dan, who was a very nice man. Yep. He said, oh, good. well, I'll get back to you. you know? And I said, <laughs> I bet they got a lot of lawyers out of Christmas parties yeah, that right. night. You know, And he called back the next day and he said, you know, yeah, I see that, Carol, but variety, comedy variety is a man's game. He said, it's oh. Sid Caesar, it's Milton Berle, now it's Dean Martin, Jackie Gleason. It's not for you gals. What did you think when he was saying well, that? I understood, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, because that was that was what it was. But right. and he said we got this great half hour sitcom called so "Here's Agnes." <laughs> oh God, that uh, sounds like something you would have made fun of on the Carol Burnett show. Tell me, yeah. <laughs> and I said I don't want to be Agnes every right. week. I said I want to be different people. I want to have music. Right. I want to have guest stars. I want a rep company. Right. I want costumes, right. scenery, light, you know. And they had to put us on the air. But they probably, I think you've said at the beginning, they figured it's going to flop in a few yeah. weeks. It's Don't worry about it. Right. And in the meantime, 11 years yeah. go by. But I guess I want to ask you, was it a hit right out of the gate or the time slot changed a few times? Yeah, right? they did. We did well, yeah. actually, which was I was kind of surprised because they put us opposite I Spy in the Big Valley. Oh, my gosh. And those were big shows. Yeah. But we, we did okay. Yeah. Uh, and then... I think the second, third year, somebody got the bright idea to put us on Wednesday nights at eight opposite a cop show, Adam 12, yeah. which was in the top, you know, yeah. and we tanked. Ugh. Oh my gosh, we were like 84, you know, <laughs> and I thought, oh, well, that's, that's it, the writing's on the wall. But Mr. Paley had, had CBS, faith. yeah, yeah. He ran CBS, yes. and instead of canceling us, he said, well, let's move them. Mm-hmm. He was a visionary yeah. not only with me but with dick van dyke sure. and mary tyler moore and all you know and he moved us to that saturday night lineup where it was fantastic with all in the family mash mary tyler moore bob newhart and us unbelievable and people wouldn't go out on saturday yeah. nights because it was before you could tape of anything. course yeah what, look what you'd be missing so all of us would get maybe 30 million people watching every show People dream of that today. Oh, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, 15 is a big number. Right, you right. Know? Well, so how did the principal repertory company that you worked with come together? Right? Where did each of these key folks come from? Well, Vicki wrote me a fan letter. Really? Because she was, what, 18 when you... She was, she was 17, 17 when she wrote the letter. Yeah. It was very well written. She was, a, she was graduating from high school. Yep. And she was going to be in a contest called Miss Fireball of Englewood in California. And she enclosed a picture of a newspaper photo of her taken because I guess they were interviewing the various young women who were going to be vying for the title of Miss Fireball. So she enclosed that. And I looked at that picture and I thought, my goodness, she looks more like me at 17 than I did. You know, and we were thinking of a possible recurring sketch every so often where Harvey is my husband and I would be raising my kid sister. Right. So I thought, well, maybe, you know, it's something. And I looked at the date of the Miss Fireball and it was going to be that very night that I received the letter because the letter had been mailed right. two or three weeks before and it went through CBS right. and then got to me. So I talked to my husband I said, don't get too comfortable. We're going to go see the Miss Fireball contest tonight. <laughs> and how was that? Yeah, and I, ca- I called Vicki. Her father's name was listed, and I got their phone number. Yeah. And I wanted to warn her or ask her if she'd be comfortable yeah. if we went. And she went, oh, yeah, okay. So she won the contest. And so I said, we'll be in touch. Yeah. And so the following summer, 
we auditioned her and another girl. Right. And she was very raw. Mm-hmm. But we saw something in her. Mm-hmm. The other girl had had much more experience. Yeah. But there was just something about Vicky, and by then she was 18. Right. So we hired her. That's and amazing. today, I'll tell you, yeah. no network would allow that. No way, yeah. Because, so many things that you guys oh, So many things, yeah. you know, that they would say, what are you talking about? You can't hire that person. Well, Mr. Paley and everybody else at CBS said, it's your show, go do it. That's great. That and doesn't happen today, no. unfortunately. Harvey Corman came from the Danny Kay show? Yes, we saw him on, on Danny's show. He was as good as... You know, when Carl Reiner and Art Carney yeah. and all, they, you know, they were second bananas to Sid and to Jackie Gleason. And Harvey was the second bananas, they call it, to right. Danny Kane. He was brilliant. Right. Even then, you know. And so we kept saying, gosh, we need a Harvey Corman. Yeah. <laughs> but then Danny's show was canceled. Right. And we were going on the air. Right. And we got Harvey. You got a Harvey Corman. <laughs> and then Tim Conway, we mentioned where he came from, but he yeah. actually was... He pe- wasn't a regular. No, people forget this. Yeah, they think he was on every week. Right. We had him on so often, it seemed like he was on every right. week. And then finally... Well, and he had had other shows right. when we were doing our show. Right. So, but then finally we signed him and he came on every week the ninth year from the ninth on and, and then lyle lyle yeah we, we got him right away yeah because it was carl reiner's suggestion to us that we get a hunky announcer yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so lyle was the best hunk and but he developed into a, being a very good sketch player sure and you guys had a terrific number of guest appearances oh, in, yeah. i think every season the first episode of the season you had jim neighbors yes he was, was my a, good luck he charm. was your good luck charm yeah he's the godfather was godfather of my middle daughter that's great yeah and we were very he's like a brother you guys taped two shows on friday every friday one of them's a dress one of them's a reel but you filmed the dress we filmed yeah we filmed both shows sort of like with I think different way, audiences yes So the the first show was that we called it a dress rehearsal, but we did tape it. And that way we could gauge certain sketches or jokes or whatever and make changes before the second show. And even though it didn't air live, obviously. We did it like a live show. Why was that? So if somebody flubs a line or drops something, you said leave it in. Yeah. Why? Because I think people liked the idea that it was a little bit dangerous. Right. You know, and like, well, you you can't do it over on a Broadway show. Right, right. You have to go through, you have to, you know, soldier through. So we wouldn't stop. I don't think in 11 years we had more than a dozen pickups. Wow. Which is redoing something. Yes, yes. And that's like today, you know, I've done some sitcom guest things where they, oh my goodness, (laughs) they take. 21 minutes and it would take five hours to do it because they're so picky of course well you also had better production value than almost anything we'd see oh, yeah, today it was like a broadway show yeah and let's just tell people 28 piece orchestra, orchestra 12 dancers yep great lighting great and then of course the bob mackie costumes 65 so, costumes a week that's crazy so it goes up to you do the math 11 years over 17,000 costumes he came up with all of the funny stuff, yes. all of the pretty stuff, everything that dances. I heard you know, the Gone with the Wind one oh, with yeah. the curtain the rod in the dress. That went in the Smithsonian. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. That's great. People love watching pros crack up other pros, and that did happen occasionally on your show. Was that something that you guys tried to make each other do? Was it something that you were upset about when it happened? Oh, well, I'll tell you, it mainly happened because of Tim. Yes. <laughs> he would do the show the way we'd rehearse it on the dress rehearsal. 
and then he'd go nuts on the air show, you right. know, on the second show. And so we weren't we were not aware of what he was going to do. Right. But it was delicious, right. and nobody ever cracked up on purpose. And Harvey used to get so mad at himself. Right. But and he was he was the worst one to crack up because all Tim would have to do is kind of look at him a little <laughs> cockeyed, and Harvey would be gone. We used right. to have a bet backstage right. with a Tim and Harvey sketch, not as to whether Harvey was going to break up, but as to how far into the sketch <laughs> he could get. Will he be? Will he last a minute? Will he last two minutes? And we'd put a dollar. That's so in the funny. Pool. That's so funny. Yeah. Well, I think one of the things that was just new about you that hadn't really existed on TV was a woman at the center of a show who did not really care if she came across in a physically attractive way. Oh. In order, if you know, if you had to play. Yeah. kind of crazy or unattractive to do a skit that was more important of course but i mean that, otherwise how are you going to get a laugh right <laughs> you know? but it's interesting because nobody yeah. else had really done that before well, you. that again that was what happened when i did gary show right Right. You know, that was my training. Right. And you take on a part and you're not, if you're going to be an old lady, you're not going to wear false eyelashes. Right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> how did taking questions become a part of the show's format? Gary used to do it, but they never taped it. OK, but he wanted to be the warm up person instead of a guy coming out telling jokes. Right. And I remember I used to sit back in the wings and just he was so personable, you know, and he would be funny. But then he could tell great stories and he took and no plants in the audience. Yeah, yeah. So when I was going to do my show, our executive producer, Bob Banner, said, Carol, you should do Q&A, and we won't have a warm-up person, because the audience should get to know you yes. before you put on the fright wig or black out your teeth or wear a fat suit or whatever, <laughs> you know? And I said, I can't do that. I No, uh-uh, no. And he talked me into it. I said, okay, I'll, I'll try it for like three weeks. Because I was, you know, that wasn't me, right, you know. Right. And so I remember the first time I went out, I was terrified. Oh, and he said, we'll put some plants in the audience. And I said, no, I don't, I, that won't be right. right. Right, So I was afraid nobody would ask a question, or right. then I was afraid somebody would, and I wouldn't have a good <laughs> answer. Or but in the end, it probably cemented your bond with the audience. It did. Yeah, interesting. And after about, and what once we were aired, we were on the air, and the folks at home saw it. So the folks who came to see the taping, they were ready. Yes, yes. To yes. ask questions, you know. Yeah. The, and so it became, and it was all ad lib. There was nothing ever, I never knew. Right. And some of the most fun things we ever had on the show came out of Q&A. Yeah, yeah. You know, and yeah. And it was a good pad because if the show was short, yes, we would show off 15 yeah, minutes yeah, of yeah. Q&A. Or if it was long, it would just be, hi, don't go away, we'll be right back. <laughs> well, another thing that was a staple of the show always, I think, at the end, you did your ear tug. What brought that about? Well, that was when I got my first job on television in New York. Mm -hmm. It was a Paul Winchell Kitty TV show. So I called my grandmother and I said, Nanny, I'm going to be on television Saturday. And she said, well, say hello to me. And I said, I don't think they're going to let me say hello, right. Nanny. So we worked this out that I would pull my left ear. And she and, knew. And it meant, yeah. That's great. Well, the Carol Burnett Show was on the air during Watergate, the Vietnam War, assassinations, all kinds of civil unrest. But you wouldn't ever know that from watching it. And I wondered if it was a conscious decision 
to avoid dealing with topical political stuff. But it wasn't like we avoided it. Right. It just wasn't our thing. Right. You know, and as I've said, I, I'm a clown. You know, right. I love the whole idea of belly laughs. Right. And later on, we got a little serious with some of the family sketches, yes. you know, which I love. Which I'm asking. You know, but yeah. uh, it was like, and I think that's kind of why today, you yeah. know, we're going on 51 years. Yes, yes. I'm getting fan mail from 10 year olds yeah. who have watched the DVDs that have been put out, see me on YouTube yeah. and on MeTV. Yeah. And they hold up. It's timeless because it's not. It's timeless because it wasn't timely. Right, right, right. Interesting. So, what were your favorite sketches? Was Eunice up there? I loved Eunice. Yeah. <laughs> I loved Eunice. It was really, an, I don't know of any other variety show that ever did that kind of thing. No. It was serious. Yeah. But the way we played it, I hope it was funny. Absolutely. And people, they said, oh my God, like some people didn't like it at all because it maybe brought it too close to home, right. you know, because it, it was the poster child for a dysfunctional family. Right. And the first time I read it, I thought, this is really pretty good writing. There are no jokes. Right. No jokes. It's all character. So when I, Vicki and Harvey and I were reading it the first Monday morning, we would just read it at the script in my office we didn't have a big table read right. like they do today right. with the, the crew and everybody it was just us right and i started with this accent right yeah talking like this like <laughs> Eunice, and because that's my texas background right right and, and arkansas from my grandmother right and vicky picked up on it and harvey so now we had a run through had a run through every wednesday right for the writers and the crew right the director and so forth and we did did it that way and the two writers who created this dick claire and jenna mcmahon they were horrified they were really hard what are you doing to it because <laughs> they were from chicago right and they both hated their mothers <laughs> <laughs> and they didn't think of it that way they said you're going to alienate the entire south right they were really worried <laughs> and uh look what happened yes. we never knew we didn't think we were first going to do it more than one time right it, it was a one-time thing, demand. but I loved it so much. Yeah. I said, "Let's let's do some more." Right. So we wound up doing, I think, about thirty-five of them. <laughs> Probably more than any other yeah. sketch. Well, and it was Bob Mackie's idea, yeah, to make Vicky Mama, because even though she's a few years younger she's than like you, sixteen years younger, yeah. And he said, "You know, because we only again thought we we thought we were going to hire an older right, woman, but right, right. we." He said, "Oh." Just go I'll with put it. Vicky in a fat suit, and we'll take <laughs> off the eyelashes and stick a wig and glasses on her, and she'll be fine. And look what happened. Absolutely. Well, another she one. She started out as my kid's sister and wound up being my mother. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, I'm sure the other one that you're probably asked about as much as anything, or the other element, and I I'm apologize in advance for asking you again, but Tarzan, where did this bellow come from? And also, is there a trick to doing it well? Well, it came from... When I would see the movies as a kid, I was nine or ten years old, yeah. and I had a beautiful cousin who was the same age, and so we would act out the movies. So if it was Nelson Eddy and Jeanette McDonald, she was the beautiful one. She was be Jeanette, and I'd be Nelson. Yes. <laughs> so guess who was Jane, and guess who was Tarzan? Right. So I developed the yell. I I just imitated it, and it's a yodel. That's all it is. It's a yodel. 
There's no chance you <laughs> no. would remind us, would you? <laughs> Not right now. Not at this think. moment. But I, I remember I taught it to Beverly Sills. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. You know, the brilliant, wonderful, right. and dear friend, opera singer. She said, how do you do that? I said, Bev, it's just a yodel. Right. And she did it. And she said, that's a great vocal exercise. Oh, it's fantastic. So the show came to an end in 78. Mm-hmm. And I want to ask you, people may not remember that during its run, you were also doing other things. Mm -hmm. You were the first celebrity ever to appear on Sesame Street, the first episode of Sesame Street in 1969. You did some films with very good directors, Martin Ritz, Pete and Tilly in 1972, Mm -hmm. Billy Wilder's The Front Page in 74. And then after the show ended, you were doing great movies with great directors, particularly with Robert Altman, A Wedding in 1978 and Health in 1980. Mm -hmm. And then I'm sure you hear all the time about Annie in 1982 for John Huston. I think that was probably my first introduction, seeing you Uh as Miss Hannigan. And you've done all kinds of memoirs and tours and all kinds of things in the years since the Carol Burnett show. Mm -hmm. But why is it that probably anywhere you go, the first thing or the thing that most people will want to talk to you about is the Carol Burnett show, which really, by the way, was also the last musical variety show that we've seen. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, you know, we were there for 11 years and a lot of people grew up with it. Yes. You know, as I said, now I'm getting fan mail you know, from kids who watch it. It's just, uh, I I don't know. Maybe because a lot of people grew up watching it, you yeah. know, that, that it's a part of their childhood. And for you to go back 50 years after it started uh-huh. to Stage 33, the same one yep. where you shot it at at CBS Television Studios, uh-huh. and do this great special that was produced by Dick Clark Productions. It aired last December 3rd, mm-hmm. and now it's nominated for two Emmys. Yeah, and it, we're going to release it. Yeah, Time DVD. Life is releasing... A copy of it, but yeah. with bonus features. This is, I think, coming September 11th. Coming, yeah, the uh, next month. You know, we have bonus features that, that we couldn't. The time sure. ran away from us, so they're they're added testimonials. There's stuff where we kid around between while they're changing the set. We kid around with the audience. Again. But was it fun for you? I mean, you're there with Vicky and Lyle. Yeah. You had all kinds of people who you touched with the show, from yeah. Maya Rudolph and Jay Leno to Stephen Colbert and Jim Carrey. I think the great. One of the funniest things I've seen, Jim Carrey says that at 10 years old, he wrote you a letter saying that, hey, I do 120 impressions. Will you hire me? (laughs) I know. know. (laughs) That was pretty cute. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Sorry. But I guess overall, you any thoughts on that special that just what it's meant to you 50 years later? Well, it's just you can't wrap your head around the fact that it went so fast. Yeah. You know, but I have to say, you know, we all rich, you know, we were younger and, you know, so forth. But. What we did couldn't be done today. So I'm glad I'm where I am, and I'm glad I was there yes. in that age at that time because it really was a golden time for television. Absolutely. You know, because there wasn't all the cable, all of this and right. that. It was, it was family. At one point, there were nine variety shows on Amazing. when we were on, you know, Laugh-In, Flip Wilson, uh, Sonny and Cher, the Smothers Brothers, right. Jim Neighbors had a right. show, you know. And it was it was just one big party. Yeah. What comedy do you consume today? I don't. You don't? No. Very. Well, I did watch Schitt's Creek. 
on Netflix. <laughs> it's great. Yeah, it cracked me up. Yeah, yeah that's about the one. But I'm not one to watch a lot of primetime sitcom or anything. Right. I'm into Breaking Bad and yes. Better Call Saul yes. and House of Cards and Homeland. Right. And that I, I know it sounds like I'm really a dark person. No, but it's like but if you do something is, during the day, you want to do something else uh, at I, night. I guess, yeah. And I'm, uh, I've become friends with Vince Gilligan, oh, that's who created Breaking Bad guy, and yeah. Better Call Saul. Yeah. yeah. Well, the last question is just, I wonder if you can talk about your legacy. Not many people here while they're alive know how much they've touched other people and you hear it not just from fans but from a whole generation of female comedians that now exist many of them say because of you and i also hear that young people reach out to you and you actually respond which is very sweet so i just wonder as the last question just what it's like to know that you've had that sort of an impact well, and and why about, you respond I, in yeah, that way i'm happy about the impact you know and the lovely compliments but my response is if i hadn't been born these ladies would be doing what they're doing Maybe. I swear, because talent will out. They'll right. find some way to get it done, and it's not because I said, oh, here's the door, and right. walk through it. Right. And uh, what was the other one? Well, just the fact that a 10-year-old g- oh, yeah. girl might write you a letter, and you actually call her up. Well, what happens usually yeah. is, and, and it's only with little kids yeah. that I do this, but if they, if it's a cute letter and they want some advice on if they're going to be like a lot of them that said they were going to be in a school production of Annie right. or a school production of Once Upon a Mattress, how do you approach the character? You know, like right. eight years old right. writing this, you know, <laughs> and if they put their phone number in, it's easier than writing a letter. Right, right. Like, call them up and I said what's what's your question and you know and I will have a nice little chat that's beautiful yeah well you're a lovely person and I I think you've I'm glad you're seeing with this 50th anniversary thing just another wave of how much you're appreciated so that's so nice of you thank you you for doing this I I really appreciate it thank you Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.